My name's Darren. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open it up to the book of Amos. And if that doesn't immediately come to mind where you go like, oh yeah, Amos, you're looking Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. There you go. If that helps, or there's a concordance in the front of your, you probably have like a device. Just type in Amos. It'll take you there. No big deal. Maybe, maybe you've got one of our, uh, our journals in front of you. And if you don't, we'd love to put one of those in your hands, but it will be helpful to have God's word in front of you as we study it together, especially as we're looking at a whole book in the course of two weeks. Uh, before we dive into Amos, let me just make a quick announcement, sort of put something on your radar. We've been having some conversations uh, at a staff level and at an elder level about the potential of consolidating our two services into one service. So we have this beautiful auditorium that seats 1,800 people, and it's kind of nice to be able to spread out, but sometimes it sort of depletes our energy level to be so distant from one another. So we started looking at the idea of consolidating into one service. We've tried it a couple of different times, um, but we're not convinced that that's the right thing to do right now for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons why we don't want to consolidate is because it would mean that our, all of our volunteers who are serving in children's ministries and those types of things would not be able to participate in corporate worship, which we're reluctant to do. Uh, we recognize that many of you are involved in uh, adult fellowships, which we love that you're plugged into, but that becomes a complicated thing to figure out where adult fellowships fall if we consolidate into one service. And then we're also thinking about the fact that for many of you, you like coming at 919 or you like, so there's people that like to come at 1111 and the moment we pick a different service time, they'll be like, forget it. And we don't want anybody to leave, right? So we're instead of consolidating services for now, we're still praying about that. And if you have uh, helpful suggestions, not mean suggestions, if you have helpful suggestions, I'm happy to hear those. Um, but one of the things we are going to do starting next week is we're going to try to rope off a few rows in the room to kind of push us together. And the reason I'm telling you about that this week is for a couple of reasons. Some of you have places that you sit that you absolutely love, right? You love that seat and you look so, let me just say, you look so good in that seat too, right? This has nothing to do with how lovely you look in your particular seat. But next week when you come in, there may be a few uh, rows roped off and I'm going to ask you to do this thing. It's actually in our mission statement, our mission statement at a church says that we are, Fullerton Free is uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're a loving community, united in sacrifice and living like Christ for the glory of God. That united in sacrifice thing, we're going to put that to the test next week, right? And what I'm going to ask you to do is to not climb over those ropes and instead see if you can find another seat where you will look just as good as you do in your current seat. Uh, you can probably guess that what's going to happen is we're going to sort of push you forward a little bit and probably into the center a little. I don't know exactly what that will look like, but I think it will uh, sort of build some energy in our services, which we could use for people that are coming in. And uh, it's a way to sort of navigate a 2000 seat auditorium and uh, in times like these. So just know that's coming and don't be shocked by it next week. We also, I know she talked about needing help in third grade. We could use a few people we bought some tasers and we're going to need a couple of people in the aisles just to sort of give a little zap to those who don't pay attention to the rope. So if you want to be a taser operator, Pete, we'll talk about it later. It's going to be really fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, some of you are really quick to want to work tasers. That's troubling, right? Okay, so that's my announcement. Now let's turn our attention to the book of Amos. We're in the middle of an ongoing study, right? And our ongoing study is called uh, Who You Calling Minor Prophets? And during the course of this summer and next, we're going to be looking at all of the minor prophets. We've already taken a look in two weeks. We looked at Hosea. We looked at Joel the last two weeks. This morning, we're looking at Amos. In the, f- f- the final two weeks of August, we'll be looking at Obadiah. And then next summer, we'll come back to the minor prophets. 
Anytime we're taking a book of the Bible and we're looking at it in two weeks, there is necessarily going to be stuff that gets left on the side, stuff that hits the cutting room floor. It's important for you to know, and I just want to kind of reemphasize something that was even said a couple of weeks ago. It will do you really well to be reading these books during the week, right? So if you haven't already been reading Hosea and Joel, if you haven't read Amos recently, it's nine chapters. I encourage you to be reading that. It doesn't take very long to read. Maybe that's a great thing for you to do during your quiet times. And I'll reiterate what Kristen said a couple of weeks ago. When you're reading these books, it's actually really great for you to read it, not only in your favorite translation, but to look at it in a variety of different translations. I think for some of us in the traditions we grew up in, we've been a little scared of, uh, you know, sometimes a paraphrase translations or translations that are different than the ones our pastor used growing up or whatever. Don't be scared of translations. Uh, they all have problems and they're all really good in their own ways. I would say be reading Amos again and again and again, just so that it's in your head and you kind of get the flow of it and be reading it in multiple translations that's easier than ever to do with technology you can go online and find any translation you want uh, but it's great to be sort of reading that through so you're prepared for our study what I'm going to do in my two weeks in Amos uh, is I, I'm not going to teach the book verse by verse, like the first half and then the second half, because the book doesn't organize itself that way. Uh, what I'm going to do for you this morning is I'm going to give you an overview of what happened in the book of Amos very quickly, and then I'm going to hit two major themes. These aren't the only themes. In fact, I found my study of Amos to be very rich. There's more that I could talk about that I just don't have the time for, so I would absolutely encourage you to dive into this, but we're going to look at two major themes. One this morning and one next week with kind of a broad overview of the book. So what you need to know as we start is that uh, Amos was a shepherd. He himself admits that he's not from a prophetic family. He's not uh, got fancy credentials. He's a shepherd from a town. It tells us in verse one of Amos one, uh, if I can get there, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. Tekoa is in the northern part of Judah, which is the southern kingdom of Israel. And he's going to talk both about Judah, the capital of which is Jerusalem. He's also going to talk about Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, which is the capital of which is Samaria, right? He'll talk about both of those. He says here in verse 1, I'm, uh, I'm just a shepherd, right? He, these are my prophecies, uh, which, which uh, Amos saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Uh, unlike Joel, who we have a hard time sort of putting in history, it's hard to figure out exactly where he was on the timeline. We can make some good guesses. We have a pretty narrow timeline here in that Uzziah and Jeroboam II only overlapped in their rulership from 767 to 753 BC. So we know his, these prophecies happen sort of during that time frame. There are different people who point to different earthquakes. I don't want to get too precise on the timeline, but you kind of get a general idea. He is from the southern kingdom of Judah, but much of what he's saying in this book is both for Judah and for Israel. And you'll see those two combined as we get further into the book. Now, this was a time in Israel of great peace and prosperity. Under the rule of Jeroboam II, uh, they were living in a kind of a time of luxury. Things were going really well. And as we've seen in other places in the Bible, when things go really well, people can start to get a little bit careless and they can become a little lackadaisical about things that are important to God. They prioritize things that maybe don't matter as much to God. And what we'll see in the writings and in the prophecies of Amos and his rebukes is God trying to get them back on course to the things that align most closely with his heart. The first two chapters, just to sort of broadly look at all nine, the first two chapters are uh, judgments upon pagan nations that surround Israel and Judah, as well as Israel and Judah. 
the middle chapters, chapters 3 through 6, are a series of sermons that were prepared for Israel and Judah, right? Uh, as, as I said, as we get further in, they're sort of combined together. And then at the end, chapters 7 through 9, we see a series of prophetic visions with regard to the way that judgment will be executed. And we'll look specifically at 7, and 9, 7 through 9 next week. We also see a, just a kind of short little verses at the very end of chapter 9 about God's restoration and redemption. So you have judgment at the beginning, chapters 1 and 2. You have sermons for Israel and Judah in 3 through 6. And then you have these prophetic apocalyptic visions in 7 through 9. As we look at chapters 1 and 2, these judgments come. And at first, for those who were listening, it probably would have felt pretty good to them. Because the first judgments that come are judgments on their neighbors, right? The judgments that come are judgments on their neighbors. So if you were to read chapter 1, and we won't read it at length this morning, but you see judgments in chapter 1 on Damascus. You see judgments on Gaza. You see judgments on Tyre. You see judgments on Edom. Uh, judgments on the Ammonites, right? These are kingdoms that sort of encircled Israel and Judah. And I don't know about you, but when other people are facing the brunt of judgment, it feels nice because the focus isn't on me. You know what I'm saying? One of my guilty pleasures back in the day was watching, uh, did you guys ever watch the show, What Not to Wear? Right? Or did you ever see Kitchen, you, maybe you watch Kitchen Nightmares now. Kitchen Nightmares is a good example of this currently, where basically, you know, Gordon Ramsay goes into a kitchen and he just tears the place apart, talks about all the things they're doing wrong. And it makes you feel good about yourself because he's yelling at those people and not yelling at you, right? It doesn't matter what your kitchen looks like. But back in the day when What Not to Wear was on, that was a show where people could write in and they would say, hey, my uncle or my neighbor or my coworker has a terrible sense of style. And so I want to have these stylistas come and give my friend a makeover, or give my dad a makeover, or whatever. And these stylistas would come in and they'd say, you got to get rid of your whole closet. And they'd throw all their clothes away and they'd replace all their clothes with new clothes. And it was really fun to sit on my couch and watch other people's wardrobes be criticized and thrown away and replaced with better clothes. But the whole time that show was on the air, and it's canceled now, the whole time that show was on the air, I had kind of an itch in the back of my mind. And the itch was, man, I sure hope my family doesn't call TLC and report me because I don't want those stylistas showing up in my living room and throwing away my closet. I worked hard to get shirts like these, right? I don't want to be told that what I'm doing is wrong. So in the first section, it's judgment after judgment on these pagan neighbors. Now, with regard to the judgment on the pagan neighbors... There's an interesting dimension to each of the judgments, and I'll encourage you to go back and look at those this week in your own study. But what's interesting about the judgments that come on Tyre and on Edom and on the Ammonites is that each one of those judgments, and they come in just these little sections in chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, each one of these judgments has an interpersonal dimension to it. So they aren't just judgments about idolatry. They're not just judgments about greed. They're not just judgments about gluttony. These are judgments about the way they treat other people. So just for the sake of you understanding what I'm talking about, if you were to look in chapter 1, verse 3, he talks about their barbarity towards their neighbors. In chapter or verse 6 of chapter 1, he talks about their selling wholesale, whole people groups into slavery. In verse 9 of chapter 1, he talks about these pagan neighbors breaking their promises and not keeping their oaths. In verse 11 of chapter 1, he talks about their hatred, their harboring of hatred towards their enemies, right? As you get further down, there's actually a very graphic depiction 
depiction in verse 13 of chapter 1 about the killing of the helpless, the, the taking of the life in a very violent way of a pregnant woman. So not only a pregnant woman who was weak herself, but of her child, right? And God judges them for the way they're interacting with one another. By the time we get to the beginning of chapter 2, there's actually a judgment about the fact that the people there had gone in and burned the bones of their ancestors, right? These are people who are like basically desecrating the graves of dead people, right? And so in God's judgments through Amos at the beginning, chapter 1 and 2, the judgments that he gives are on these pagan neighbors, but these pagan neighbors aren't just being judged because they're worshiping false gods. They're being judged because of the way they interact with one another, because of the way they treat their fellow human beings, because of the savage way in which they treat each other, because of their harbored hatred, because of their ruthlessness toward the weak and the oppressed, those who are on the fringes, even their willingness to desecrate people's sacred burial grounds, right? God says, this is not how human beings should treat each other. And I imagine as these initial prophecies are coming through this shepherd Amos, if the people of Judah and Israel are hearing it, they're feeling pretty good. The way I do when I'm sitting on the couch watching kitchen nightmares or what not to wear because it's about somebody else. And then as we get to verse 4 of chapter 2, God, through his prophet Amos, turns his attention on Judah and on Israel. When he turns his attention on Judah and on Israel, he looks at Judah because of their, their breaking of his principles, and he looks at Israel because of their compromise in practice of those very same principles. Here's what it says. Let's read this together. This is Amos 2, and we're going to read uh, from verse 4 on, the judgments on Judah and on Israel. It says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. He says, they haven't kept my law. And in fact, what they've prioritized over my law are the lies of their ancestors, the lies of their forefathers that they've basically treated as the law, right? They're treating their own sort of anecdotal uh, uh, practices and their own traditions as my law. But those things were lies and they have not kept my truth. He says in verse six, thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profane. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who've been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. God has focused his attention through Amos on these pagan nations for the way in which they were treating their fellow, their fellow man. And now he turns that very same lens and the indictment that we see for Judah and Israel is the very same thing. But the indictment is stronger for Judah and Israel because there is a higher expectation for them. 
God goes on there at the end of two to say, I led you out by my strong hand. I am the one who delivered you. I am the one who preserved you. It was my grace and my kindness and my generosity. In essence, what he's saying is, did you learn nothing by paying attention to what I did for you? That now you're treating each other in this way? The indictment on Israel, he says uh, in, in verse six, remember, they, they um, excuse me, in seven, they trampled the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turned aside the way of the afflicted, right? He's saying you're treating each other the same way your pagan neighbors treat one another. There is no difference between the way you treat your fellow man and the way they treat their fellow man. And so judgment is coming on all of you, but the judgment on you will be swifter and stronger because you're mine. Because you've seen my example of love and grace and generosity because I've put on a display for you in my power and in my righteousness. Those other nations, they don't have an excuse either because there is a moral law that all people operate under. But you of all people, Israel and Judah, should know how to treat one another. And what you in essence are doing, the indictment here and we see in the rest of the book, what he, what he talks to them about is the very same thing that he talked to the pagan people about. That they're treating people as things. That they're prioritizing their own profits over the welfare of others. That they're harboring hatred. That they're neglecting the rights of the helpless. That they're exacting vengeance. Uh, Kristen talked last week about inhumanity. The indictment of God in the book of Amos is towards inhumanity. And specifically the inhumanity of people who should know better. People that are called by him. And people who live under a greater expectation. And yet are treating one another the same way the pagans do. God says this can't stand. Right? He rebukes them for it. When the judgment turns to Judah and Israel, it's for the same crimes. Yet they are uniquely accountable because they are uniquely called and chosen. Right? Judah ignores God's truth. And so when we get to chapter 3, he's telling them in no uncertain terms, if you think this punishment isn't going to come, if you think you're not going to pay for what you're doing to, to the poor and the oppressed and the needy and the weak, think again. Here's what he says in chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. He says, hear the word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he's taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Right? He says, these things are absolutely coming your way. And yet you're acting like you don't have a care in the world. He's going to come back to that in a second in these sermons here in 3 through 6. He says, you're acting as if there is no consequence. You're acting as if uh, X doesn't lead to Y. And yet here's what's coming. Judgment. He says in verse 7, For the Lord does nothing without revealing a secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? And then he says this in verse 9, Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. He says, I'm going to actually go to your pagan neighbors and invite them to come and watch. These people that you think you're so much better than, these people that you think you're so much holier than and so much righteous, so much more righteous than, I'm going to invite the Egyptians to come and stand on the hill while you are punished for not maintaining my heart with one another, right? With the people around you. They're oppressed in your midst. You store up violence and robbery. That's the norm for you. It would have been a great insult to know that Ashdod and Egypt were going to come and surveil this punishment. 
Therefore, verse 11, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you and your stronghold shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. He says there are only going to be remnants left. And he'll go into great detail about what that looks like. Percentages of people that will be left after this destruction, after this judgment comes. He says in 13, Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end. God says, wake up. You're living as if there is no consequence to what you've done. You're living as if everything is normal and it isn't normal. It isn't okay. And judgment will come. Shake out of your ambivalence. When we move on to Amos chapter 4, and I know we're reading a lot, but I want you to kind of get the sense of this. We get to 4, he says, you continue your sort of self-serving religious practices if everything is okay. Look at just the first five verses. He says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. There's, he's being sarcastic and ironic there. By the way, if you have any question about God's sarcasm, he's not encouraging these things, but he's saying, this is what you do. You move to all these places with transgression and wickedness. You multiply your wickedness. You bring, you're still bringing sacrifice and tithes, right? You offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving, but you offer it with that which is corrupted or is leavened. You proclaim free will offerings and publish them but you do that because you love to do it, right? You do it because it's self-serving. He says there is religious practice still going on, even in the midst of your oppression of the poor and your disregard of the needy. Even though my heart is not being put on display, there's still religious stuff going on, and you think that's going to be satisfactory. You think that's going to be okay. But religious practice is not enough. Religious practice is not enough. The New Testament makes that clear for us as well, doesn't it? When we look at something like what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, where he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from you, workers of lawlessness. What Jesus is emphasizing here is that it's possible to do all the churchy stuff. It's possible to do all the religious stuff, to offer sacrifices, but the reason that you're offering the sacrifices is because you love to do it. It makes you feel good. And even your practice, your religious practice, has become self-serving. He says, all of those practices aren't going to save you at the end of the day because they're not what I want. What I want is for my heart to be revealed in you. When we go on into uh, Amos chapter 5, look at verse 18 and following. He says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. He says, I actually hear some of you saying, we can't wait for God's judgment to come, right? We can't wait for the day of the Lord, which we've heard about both in Hosea and in Joel. We can't wait for God's judgment to come, right? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about or why you'd be excited about the day of judgment because when the day of judgment comes, that's going to be awful for you, right? 
He's like, I think maybe you're saying it because you're hoping that judgment will fall on outsiders, but you I hold to a higher expectation. He says, why would you be excited about the day of the Lord? That's going to be a dark day for you, right? He says, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light with gloom, with no brightness in it? Listen to this. God says, I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. He says, I don't want to hear your songs. I don't want your offerings. I don't want your religious practice. I want you to be righteous. And, and I want you to bring justice to those who are suffering and hurting. I want you to put my heart on display. I'm not interested in empty religion that serves you. While you lounge, right? Here's what he says at the end of this. He says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Verse 25, did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikketh your king and Kiun your star god, your images that you made for yourselves. And I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. And then look at this, chapter 6, verse 1. I think this is the crux of the whole book. Chapter 6, verse 1, he says, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. And to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. He says, hear this warning, you who are comfortable. Hear this warning, you who look at yourselves and feel like, yeah, you know what? We're doing it. We put money in the offering plate, right? We sing our songs. We show up. He's like, your heart is so far from me. You do all the religious stuff but you don't care for the poor. You don't care for the oppressed. You're not looking out for those who are needy. You harbor hatred in your heart. There is vengeance in you. All of the things he said of the pagan nations, you treat people as things. You care more about your own profit than you do about the welfare of others. You're harboring hatred, neglecting the rights of the helpless, exacting vengeance, right? He says, woe to you who are at ease. You've missed my heart. Woe to you who continue your self-serving religious practices as if everything is okay. You say you're looking forward to the day of the Lord, but you shouldn't because I'm looking from you for justice. I'm looking from you for righteousness and love. Now, let me just be really clear. It's interesting when we look at the minor prophets, um, I don't know how you felt in Hosea and Joel. I was traveling uh, during most of the month of July, and so I had to watch those messages online. By the way, if you ever miss a Sunday, uh, you can go back and sort of catch up, and you absolutely should. The teaching over the last four Sundays has been excellent. But as we listen to Hosea and to Joel, I wonder if there's a thing that happens in your heart where you start to go, oh man, we, we better be careful, right? Because... Locusts are going to come and they're going to eat everything in our cities or fire is going to fall from the sky. The wrath of God is going to fall on us, right? I want to be really careful that as we look at the minor prophets that we're really clear about one particular thing. You and I, who are followers of the Lord Jesus, do not have to worry about the wrath of God falling on us like the people in ancient Israel and Judah had to worry about the wrath of God falling on them, right? God was very serious about their sin. He was very serious about the way he had called them to holiness, which just means to be set apart. He had called them to reveal him in their time. And they were not doing it, and they incurred his wrath. What's interesting for those of us who live here in 2023 is that we don't have to fear the wrath of God. The wrath of God, don't forget, for those who are followers of Christ, has been met in the person of Jesus. The wrath of God has been placed on him. 
just for the sake of sort of reminding you of things you may already know, Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5 says of Jesus, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed, right? All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Similarly, Romans chapter five, verse eight and nine says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God, right? Romans chapter eight, verse one says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So let me say two things. We remember that the Old Testament, right, was always setting up for us our need for Redeemer. We talked about that when we talked about the big story of the Bible, right? That you've got creation and this perfect harmony between God and man, between man and woman, between God and man and woman in creation. Remember when we talked about that? And then there is brokenness. And the rest of the Old Testament, all the way up to the Gospels, is a retelling of the same story. And the retelling of the same story is man does everything they can to try and be righteous, to try and reveal God, and they fail miserably every time. Time, right? It doesn't matter whether they have kings or whether they have judges. It doesn't matter how they're trying to organize themselves living just under the Old Testament law. They never pull it off. By the time we get to the Old Testament, it is very clear that they will not be able to save themselves. And so when we get to the New Testament and Jesus comes on the scene, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see Jesus come and say, you can't do it. You have incurred the wrath of God again and again and again. No matter how many chances you've been given, you can't live righteously I will take your sin upon myself. Jesus takes the sin of the world and he dies on our behalf. And the wrath of God, as it says in Romans and in Isaiah, was placed on him. You and I, living today, don't have to be fearful with regard to our sin or the sin of our church or the sin of our culture that God's going to burn the thing up in a, in a fiery hailstorm or in a tornado or he's going to send locusts to eat all of our buildings, right? The wrath of God has been placed on Jesus. Now that said, there may be some of you in the room who've never put your faith in Christ. And if you've never put your faith in Christ, maybe you're checking Christianity out. Maybe you're checking out church. I just want to put the invitation out there to say, I would love to talk with you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Because apart from the saving grace, the death and resurrection of Christ and his gracious gift of resurrection life, apart from that, the wrath of God is still resting upon you. You're set to pay the penalty for your own sins. But there is no reason why you should remain in that state because Jesus has already done everything necessary to free you from sin and death. Now, even though I say that the wrath of God has been placed on him, how then do we read these Old Testament minor prophets? How do we read them? If we don't have to be scared of locusts or of hellfire, if we don't have to be scared of, you know, hailstones and, you know, whatever, if we don't have to be scared of these things, what should we take away from this? Well, just because we don't have to be worried about that sort of wrathful condemnation from God doesn't mean that God doesn't take sin seriously. Sin is still an important issue. It's a thing we absolutely have to take seriously because God takes it seriously. While the wrath of God does not remain on us who are followers of Jesus, there are still consequences to sin. There's a temporal consequence to sin in the way it creates suffering for other people. When we talk about injustice, when we talk about hatred, when we talk about treating other people like property, when we talk about prioritizing our own profits over the welfare of our fellow, welfare of our fellow human beings, there is suffering for our fellow human beings in that. So is there a problem with sin that breaks the heart of God? Absolutely. Is he going to burn your house down? No. But should you care about it? Yes, because God cares about it. There are temporal consequences to sin in the suffering of you yourself and the suffering of other people around you. And different sins have different temporal consequences. You can figure that out on your own, I think. 
But I'll also say this. There's another reason you should care about sin. Another reason you should care about sin is that God created you for more than that, right? When you compromise God's law, when you live a life of greed or a life of hatred, when you lead a life of idolatry, when you lead a life of sexual perversion, when you lead a life of sin, you are living your life for far less than he built you for. So don't throw sin away. Don't say, hey, sin doesn't matter for me anymore. No, sin matters because you were built for so much more, right? God created you for so much more. And thirdly, and not least important, most important, is that sin matters because it mars the image of God. One of our key focuses in this church now and forever is the revelation of Christ. That God has left this church in this world to be his body. We have his mission. And when you and I live lives of selfishness and greed and perversion and wickedness and gluttony and all of these things, and we continue about with our regular religious practice, but we're operating with selfishness at the core of us, that distorts the image of Christ. So does sin matter? Yeah, because it has temporal consequences in the life of you and your neighbors. Does sin matter? Yeah, because you were built for so much more. Does sin matter? Yeah, because when you live a life of wickedness, it mars the image of Jesus. And as an ambassador, you were called to paint an accurate picture of Jesus in this age. So sin matters. God takes sin very seriously. It's interesting. I was having a conversation actually this week with Alan, who's sitting back over here. He helps with the teaching sometimes. And we were talking about the fact that it feels like the church in this age is so externally focused, right? We're so focused on how wicked everybody else is. We spend tons of time on social media and other places going, look at this rotten people and look at these dirty people and look at these wicked people and look at this. And we spend all this external time. And one of the negative byproducts of that external focus on the wickedness of the world around us, who, by the way, it's not our job to judge because God will do that. One of the negative impacts of our external focus is that we don't do personal inventory of our own sin. We don't look at both our own selfishness, our own greed, our own gluttony, our own unkindness to our fellow man, but we also don't pay attention to the ways that starts to pervade us as a group, corporately and culturally. Are there ways in which our church is not caring for people in our neighborhood the way we should? We won't pay attention to that at all if we're always focused on the wickedness of somebody else. What God is saying through Amos to the people of Israel and of Judah is you think you're comfortable. He says, woe to the people at ease. You're taking the traditions of your forefathers and you're treating those like that's what I want you to do. But those are lies. I've showed you what it looks like to be gracious. I've showed you what it looks like to be merciful. I've showed you what it looks like to be kind and generous and loving. And you've missed my heart, he says to them, and we take from this study as well. This warning is as relevant to us as ever. We don't have to be fearful of God's fiery punishment But we absolutely have to realize that we've missed the mark for what he created us for, what he created our church for, right? We missed the mark and we deal with the temporal consequences of that in both our lives and the lives of others. No question God cares about sin. Romans 12, 1 through 3 says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. He doesn't say, hey, just keep living the way you want to because you've been saved by the grace of God. He says, no, the grace of God should change the way you live. People are watching. It makes a difference in the lives of your fellow man. My reputation here is at stake. Titus chapter two, I love this verse. Titus 2.11 says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Praise God, right? 
The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us or teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. Why do we do good works? Because he rescued us. His grace teaches us to live merciful lives. To live generous lives. His grace is our teacher, not his punishment. His grace is our teacher. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, some of you may remember this from our study there. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There's an interesting thing that happens, I think, in modern culture for some reason. I hear people saying, well, that church is just about social justice, but our church is about holiness. That church is just about, you know, social programs, but our church is about righteousness. And there's a false paradigm there, and I just want to point it out to you. One of the major themes of the book of Amos is that our concern for other people is the same thing as righteousness. Our concern for our fellow man, the way we serve and the way we love, the way we care for them, the way we put people above our prophets, the way we refuse to harbor hatred towards anyone, That is equitable in the book of Amos. When we understand the heart of God, that is equitable with righteousness. What does it mean to be righteous? To do the right thing is to care for other people. Now in Hebrews 12, 14, it says what? We pursue holiness and we pursue peace with others. So is there a call for personal righteousness? Absolutely. Should you be trying to repent of and turn away from the greed and the selfishness and the sexual perversion and all those other things? Yeah, for sure. But don't separate them out and say, well, some churches care about us living a good life and some churches care about others. No, no, no. The church of Christ sees both as equitable with righteousness. Sin in my own life and sin with the way we treat other people. The question here is we look at God's serious way in which he treats sin is, do you treat others the way God has treated you? How has God treated you? Grace? Love, forgiveness, adoption, patience, peace, sacrifice. Are you the recipient of those things? Do you feel it? When we worship, isn't that what you're celebrating? That you're the recipient of God's kindness? How well do you replicate that kindness to the people in your neighborhood or the people who sit at your kitchen table or the people who sit in the cubicle next to you at work? The replication of that kindness and generosity is a part of revealing the will of God, the heart of God put on display. God is serious about sin. And in the book of Amos, he says to his people, woe to you who are at ease. You feel like you're fine because you're offering sacrifices and singing Christian songs. I don't care about that. Take your songs and love other people. Let justice and righteousness roll, he says. The church historically has a long history. And I don't, I don't mean Fullerton Free. I mean the church. The church has a long history of oppression and of hatred, of theft and abuse You can think of the Crusades. You can think of the doctrine of discovery, which permitted a bunch of people in the name of God to steal land that didn't belong to them. Anti-Semitism for thousands of years from Christians towards Jewish people. The endorsement of slavery, the endorsement of sexism, the endorsement of ongoing racism. And in all of those things, the church was at ease in their violence, at ease in their theft, They felt fully justified to go in and take whatever they wanted because they believed that God had called them to conquer the Americas. 
God says, woe to you. Woe to you, Zion, when you're at ease in your sin. That's not my heart. My heart isn't taking from other people. It's not harboring hatred. It's not stealing. It's not putting your own profit and your own gain above the good of other people. Sometimes they've even used religion to justify their abuse. Church, as we finish our study of the first part of Amos, the first major theme, I just want to say this. The change has to start with us. It has to start with us going like, I'm not going to be comfortable with the places where hatred and injustice, unkindness, where those places exist within me. I'm not going to let that happen anymore. You know, I don't have to tell you this. You know that in our world, there are people leaving the church in droves. One of the reasons why we're having to consider consolidating to one service, one of the reasons why we're having to figure out what we're, you know, put ropes in and whatever with a 2,000 seat auditorium is there are people who are leaving. And admittedly, there's lots of different reasons they leave. But one of the primary reasons why the stats say people are leaving right now is because the church has missed the heart of Jesus. We're really good at singing songs. And we're really good at building buildings. And we're really good at patting ourselves on the back. When God says, don't be at ease in your injustice. Don't be at ease in your sin. Right? One of the major themes of the book of Amos is this this shepherd from northern Judah who comes and looks at God's people and says, you've seen the heart of God demonstrated in your own life. All he's asking is for you to put that same love on display. The change starts with us. Christians who accurately reveal Christ by prioritizing both of the things he prioritized. A love of God, which leads to holiness, right? It leads to a repentance from our personal sin and also a love of our neighbor. I'll read it to you one more time because I love it. But Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, when Jesus is asked what's most important, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And before they have a chance to ask him another question, he says, also, there's a second that's just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus says, if you get both loving God, living a holy life, and loving your neighbor, you get those two right, you figured everything out. All the questions you have, all the things you don't know, all those mysteries, you'll be all right. Get those two right. Love God, love others. Church, it has to start with us. Let's be a church that sings the songs and pays the tithes and does the... You know, I'm not saying we shouldn't do any of those things either, but those things happen in conjunction with the heart of Christ that cares for those on the margins of society and those who've been cast away. Let's be careful that we don't fall into the traditions of our forefathers who justified all kinds of theft and hatred and violence in the name of God. Because while they were doing religious practice, they mostly had their own comfort in their sights. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would stir in us a heart to be different people, that it would start at an individual level, that we, would, that we would turn and repent from the places where we harbor bitterness, where we care more about stuff than our neighbors, the places where there's violence in us towards those that we don't sometimes even know, places where we're anxious for the judgment of God or the day of the Lord, but we don't realize that he's going to point that finger at us because there is a greater expectation on those he has redeemed. Help us to relive with redemptive lens. And help us to turn individually and corporately away from any practice that would mar the image of your heart in this society. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.